Good morning. Let's pray together once more as we prepare to open God's Word. Our Father in Heaven, we are a thankful people this morning. Thankful for you, Father, so loving the world that you sent your Son to die in our place, to be raised to teach us your way, to lead us along the paths of righteousness for your sake. We thank you for the Holy Spirit which you have gifted us with as believers, the one through whom we have regeneration, who steers us and communes with us and leads us into the paths of righteousness. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word we find not only the truth about you, but also the truth about ourselves, the truth about this world and the trajectory of history that you have created for your world, the fulfillment that you will bring history to eventually, Lord. And we pray, hasten the day. We pray, Lord God, as your people, that you would hasten the new age which has broken in in Jesus Christ that will one day overtake and dispense with the old age of sin, death, and the devil. Lord God, as we open your word again, we pray your spirit's help. Give us ability to concentrate, ability to rejoice, ability to listen, ability to be doers of the word and not hearers only later. And Lord God, would you grant us in this time nothing short of a renewed vision of the grandeur of your plan and purpose for us in this world. This is our prayer in the mighty and in the powerful name of our friend and master and Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning our real focus will be on Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. So if you have your Bible, you can open to Revelation 7. But before we arrive at those two specific verses, I want us to first do just a brief survey of verses 1 to 8 of Revelation 7 so that we can understand more about the context of our verses, verses 9 and 10. So I hope that you have come prepared this morning uh, to get a little apocalyptic with me as we look at this section of Revelation 7. The book of Revelation falls into the apocalyptic genre of literature. Revelation 7 is like an intermission, an intermission that happens after the Lamb breaks the first six seals in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 7 is the intermission that comes immediately after those first six seals are broken, but it comes before the final seventh seal is broken at the beginning of Revelation 8. Revelation 7 describes the protection of believers and the perseverance of believers through tribulations. And what we notice as Revelation 7 opens is that it has a decidedly global outlook 
about it, or it's concerned, we could say, it's concerned with a worldwide scope. We notice in Revelation 7-1 that we have four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back four winds. Now, when Scripture talks about the four corners of the earth in a place like Isaiah 11-12 or here in Revelation 7-1, it's talking about the whole extent of the globe, the entire earth. So these four angels are operating globally. They are working in the power of God over the whole earth to hold back the four winds of the earth. And the four winds of the earth are most likely to be equated with the four horsemen that we hear about at the start of Revelation 6 with Zephaniah 6 in the background. The four angels hold back the four horsemen, the four winds, And they do that so that something specific can take place on the earth. A specific something that we have in verses 2 and 3. The main event of verses 2 and 3 is that a seal is placed on the foreheads of God's servants. Now, always, 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 We have to read the book of Revelation, not so much with current events in mind, please, but rather with the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament in mind, if we would really understand and grasp what John is doing in Revelation and the message of the book of Revelation. And here in Revelation 7, we have to read verses 2 and 3 with Ezekiel 9 and Exodus 12 in clear view. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God commands that a mark be put on the foreheads of his people in order to protect them from his wrath. And in Exodus 12, of course, if we remember the story of the Passover, blood is the mark that is put on the doorposts of the Hebrews in order to protect and to preserve them from the destroying angel. So the seal in Revelation 7 is then a protective seal. John here is clearly drinking from the wells of Ezekiel 9 and from Exodus 12. The seal in Revelation 7 is about spiritual protection and preservation of God's people in the midst of the breaking of the seals in Revelation 6 and Revelation 8. And those who are sealed, I hope you're looking at the text with me, those who are sealed, those who are protected, are numbered there. Very specifically in verses 4 through 8, John says, listen to what he says, I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then John enumerates, doesn't he? He enumerates the breakdown of the 144,000 in verses 5 through 8. 
Now, friends, there is absolutely no question, knowing what we do about virtually every other number that's given in the book of Revelation, that this number, this 144,000, is to be taken as a symbolic number. A symbolic number. As Michael Wilcock has said, and I most heartily agree, this number, 144,000, has to be taken as a symbol rather than as a statistic. A symbol rather than a statistic. What John is doing here, as he writes this number in Revelation 7-4, is he's messaging us in the days before Facebook. He's messaging us. He's saying something to us, and he's saying it through this number. What's he saying? Well, let's break the number down to see what he's saying. If you have your Bible open, note carefully that the number 12 figures in prominently in verses 5 through 8. You see that? John gives us 12 separate 12,000s. 12 separate 12,000s in those verses. And of course, 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. There are 12 12 12,000s in verses 5 through 8. But John, throughout his book called Revelation, also clearly likes the number 10 and is doing something with the number 10. There are 10 days of tribulation in Revelation 2.10, and there are 10 horns on the red dragon of Revelation 12.3, and 10 horns on the beast of Revelation 13.1 and 17.3. There are 10 diadems also in Revelation 13.1, and there are 10 kings in Revelation 17.12. The number 10, along with the number 12, are two of John's favorite numbers in Revelation. Twelve is the number of Israel, and ten is the Bible's, one of the Bible's numbers that indicates completion, that indicates wholeness. Twelve and ten. Well, let's do some math here. You ready? For all our many mathematicians out there, and we do have several in our congregation. Uh, I feel out of my element here, but here it goes. Twelve squared or 12 times 12, is 144. If we take 144 and multiply it by tens, 144 times 10 is 1,440, times another 10 is 14,400, times a third 10, we get to our number 144,000. John, in his Jewish framework is playing here with the number 12 squared and the number 10 cubed. Again, I need to remind us, 12 is the number of Israel, and 10 in the Bible is the number of completion, a number of completion. So that in essence, what John is saying to us, listen, what he's saying to us through this number, 144,000, is Israel complete, or Israel in perfect total, or the whole exhaustive Israel. 144,000 is shorthand for the whole exhaustive Israel. 
Again, we need to be clear, 144,000 is a symbolic number rather than a statistic. Now, as we venture forward from verse 4, and I hope you're with me here, into verses 5 through 8, these verses are especially interesting because what John tells us here is that this whole, complete, total Israel is not to be understood simply as the old, bordered Israel that we had in the pages of the Old Testament. No. Something has happened to Israel. The picture of Israel that John gives us now in these verses indicates very strongly that we're not dealing now with the sort of standard Israel that we had on the pages of the Old Testament, Israel has morphed now into something very different. Watch this. The list that John gives us in these verses, verses 5 through 8, the list of the tribes of Israel is a list, listen, unlike any other such list that we can find anywhere in the Old Testament. John messes with the list of tribes here, to quote Daryl Johnson, and he does this on purpose. John does about four things here that have no precedent in any of the standard lists of the tribes in the Old Testament, and we must keep in mind that John was a Jew. The point is, John knew those Old Testament lists backwards and forwards way better than any of us do. It wasn't that he had forgotten them and now was sort of improvising with his own list. No. John was purposely messing with the list here to make a theological point, to make a theological statement. So how does John mess with the list specifically Pastor Dunbar. Well, for starters, I'm glad you asked. John begins his list. Notice the list. He begins it with Judah. Very unusual. Normally, such lists of tribes would start with Reuben. Second, John leaves out Dan altogether here. There's no tribe of Dan in any of these verses. Odd. Third, Also very different, John includes Joseph and Joseph's son Manasseh, but he leaves out Joseph's son Ephraim. Very unusual. And then fourth, John includes Levi here, who was normally left out of such lists. So the upshot is, it's like John is going out of his way to say, Israel is whole and complete, verse 4 and the 144,000, but, verses 5 through 8, the very nature of Israel has changed. Yes, it has. The coming of Jesus Christ and the dying and rising of Jesus Christ has changed the very warp and woof of Israel. Israel is indeed complete and total as the number 144,000 told us in verse 4, but Israel is not the same as it was. Verses 5 through 8 tell us that. There is, listen, a new Israel. 
a new Israel, a greatly expanded Israel because of Jesus Christ and his world-flipping work. And that new Israel is described in the very next verse, in verse 9. Let's go to verse 9. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, hallelujah, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, I'm warming up for the day. See, friends, the new Israel, the morphed Israel, is now a multi-ethnic Israel. Mind-blowing. The new Israel is a multicolored, glorious, international chosen people of God. The point we're making here is that the complete yet morphed Israel that was described in verses 4 through 8, this is the same as the group that's described now in verse 9. That's my contention. John's main idea here is that the new Israel is a greatly expanded Israel without borders. The new Israel is all believers in God's Messiah, Jesus of Judah, It's probably why Judah is first in the list, because Jesus came from Judah. All believers in God's Messiah, this is the new Israel, no matter what nation they come from. This is God's bride, which certainly includes believing Jews, but also includes believing Gentiles from every nation, which was God's plan from the beginning. Now let's dig into verse 9 in a little more detail here. In particular, I want you to notice some of the language that John uses here and how the language is purposely tethered to the Old Testament vision of Israel and Israel's mission to the nations that we talked about or tried to give you an introduction to two weeks ago. In verse 9, John starts by saying this, After this I looked, and behold, listen to what he says, a great multitude that no one could number. Notice that phrase there, a great multitude that no one could number. Way back in Genesis 12, God had promised Abraham that a great nation would arise out of Abraham and his offspring. And then in Genesis 17.4, God had told Abraham that Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations. When John talks here in Revelation 7-9 about a multitude that no one could number, he's picking up on the promise to Abraham from Genesis. Here in Revelation 7-9, what's being pictured is the ultimate fulfillment 
of the multitude of nations that would arise via Abraham that had been promised way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17.4. Now, Gentile Christians here, most of us are Gentile Christians, according to Galatians 3.7, it is those of faith, like you and I, who are the sons and daughters of who? Of Abraham. Even if we're Gentiles from the nations. If we belong to Christ, according to Galatians 3.29, we are Abraham's offspring. Amazing. Believers in God's Messiah, Jesus, whether Jewish or Gentile, are the great multitude that no one can number, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And notice that John says next that the multitude is from where? From every nation. Blessed. Again, this is in fulfillment of God's word to Abraham in a place like Genesis 22:18, where God said to Abraham, In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now in Revelation 7, the nations are finally gathered together, blessed in the redemption of Jesus Christ, worshiping the one and true God. The nations are gathered now in fulfillment of Isaiah 66, 18 to 20. Now they are together and they are all marveling at the glory of God. The true Israel, which includes a multitude of people from all nations, tribes, peoples, and languages is standing now before the throne and before the Lamb, as John says here, they are celebrating the salvation that God has wrought. Now, friends, this passage in Revelation 7, there's so much we could say about it, but this passage, together with several other passages in the book of Revelation, provide for us a stunning vision of life in the new creation. Are you looking forward to it? One very important lesson that Revelation teaches us in the words of Cornelius Venema is this. And I want you to listen closely. That nothing of the diversity of the nations and peoples, their cultural products, languages, arts, sciences, literature, and technology, so far as these are good and excellent, will be lost upon life in the new creation. One more time. I mean, we have to dispense with the Philadelphia cream cheese version of disembodied spirits floating from cloud to cloud. That is an unbiblical vision of where we're headed. Completely. It's another sermon. I want to read that one more time. Venema says, Nothing of the diversity of the nations and peoples, their cultural products, languages, arts, sciences, literature and technology, so far as these are good and excellent, will be lost upon life in the new creation. So just consider the picture of where we as believers in Jesus are heading. And I'm getting a lump in my throat already. One day soon coming, 
Just imagine it. You and I will be, as believers, shoulder to shoulder, communing for eternity with fellow redeemed believers from Namibia, from Korea, from Estonia, from Taiwan, from Zimbabwe and Chechnya, from Pakistan, from Tibet and Ecuador and Norway and Mexico. And according to Revelation 21, verses 24 through 26, the best cultural distinctives of each people group will be maintained in the new creation. But now in the new creation, they will be unhindered by sin because it's the new creation after all. The best cultural distinctives of the people groups of the world will glorify God night and day, and they will testify to his astonishing creative power. I am so excited about the new creation that's coming because I can hang out with redeemed believers from Serbia for a few thousand years, and then spend the next millennium immersed with the Maasai of Kenya, learning from them and fellowshipping with them and worshipping Jesus together. And then I can travel over in my glorified body to spend time with Moldovan believers and Italian believers. And friends, our church right now Snowden Baptist Church on this very day in early 2018. We are a blessed microcosm in the present of what awaits us in eternity. Amen? As Randy Alcorn says, listen to this. God has one bride, yet she consists of a wide diversity of people who right now are being healed of their divisions, while maintaining their distinctives, testifying to their creator's richness. I love that. That's God's design for his bride. His bride, the new Israel, is a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational, multicolored bride, and it will be for all eternity. Now, to get us really excited, listen to another thing that Alcorn says in his great book that has the simple title, Heaven. I'd encourage you to get that book because it's fantastic. Alcorn argues that more than likely in the new creation, we will not just meet people of modern people groups and modern civilizations, although we will, but also believers who lived in ancient civilizations like Assyria, Phoenicia, Babylon, etc. Alcorn's argument, as he looks closely at Revelation 7-9, he says that no nation, past or present, is excluded from every tribe and language and people and nation. No nation, past or present, is excluded. I think Alcorn's right. 
So again, I don't know about you, but I am looking forward to getting with an Assyrian believer or two who lived during the time of Jonah, when Jonah came finally prophesying to Nineveh. And I want to ask them about how did you come to belief? What happened with Jonah's prophecy? What did he look like after he came out of the whale? Was he bleached? I want to ask them to tell me the story from their perspective. Just just imagine spending time with diverse people from diverse people groups, all people groups, both past and present. It's going to be amazing. Friends, as Chris Wright points out, the bride of Christ is no melting pot. Sorry, Americans. It's no melting pot where all of our cultural and racial differences are sort of melted together to to form kind of a single, rather boring alloy. Wright says this. Oh, this is good. He says, The image we might prefer for the Bible's portrait of the nations is not a melting pot, but rather a salad bowl in which all ingredients preserve their distinctive color, texture, and taste. Yes. We made a salad at home a while back that had a variety of green leaves in it and some sliced red pepper and some toasted almonds and uh, what else did we put in it? Some uh, sugar snap peas and uh, some sesame dressing and some chow mein noodles. Uh, just for some crunch. I love that salad because each ingredient shines on its own. Each ingredient has a taste and color of its own, but when you put it all together, it makes one delicious salad. Did you know that I would give you both a salad recipe and a math lesson in the same sermon? You never know what you're going to get. I agree with what Chris Wright says. The Bible's portrait of the nations is sort of like a salad bowl where each ingredient preserves its distinctive color, texture, and taste, but is united into one in Jesus Christ where white guys like me, who have been humbled under the sound of the gospel, are together with Chinese believers who have had to meet underground in their lifetime for fear of reprisal from their government. All of us are together with other believers from Sri Lanka and Switzerland and Morocco and Barbados and the U.S. Ah, I'm looking forward to it. Back to our text. But we have it now here at Snowden in microcosm. Back to our text. The Bride of Christ at the end of Revelation 7-9, notice... They are wearing white robes and they are holding palm branches. White robes indicate their purity before the Lord. These are the overcomers of Revelation 3.5 who get white garments. And the palm branches in their hands mean that they are joyfully celebrating Jesus, their King and Redeemer. 
the one who brought the ultimate blessing of God to the nations, the new and better Abraham, and he did it by his cross and resurrection. Verse 10. The multicolored bride of Jesus is crying out with a loud voice. This microphone is hot today. I don't want to cry out with too loud a voice. But they're crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is exuberance here. Sometimes as believers, I don't think we're exuberant enough. We get excited at Edmonton Oilers hockey games, some some of us. That's all part of the passing age. Like, who really cares? Sorry, hockey fans. but. But this is what we should be exuberant about. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. As believers, we are a singing people. Amen? In the face of evil and tribulation on this earth, we still sing because we know Jesus and because we know where he is guiding history and because he is the unassailable, sure goal of all of human history. We sing because he walks with us and he talks with us and because we are safe in him even though cancer comes or children go haywire or spouses leave or the bank account goes empty. We sing because of Jesus. In Revelation 7.10, now just imagine this. Just imagine this. We have thousands upon thousands of believers from every people group singing together. Salvation belongs to our God. Listen to the lyrics they sing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the land. Listen to the lyrics of that song very carefully. Who does salvation belong to? To God and to the Lamb. As believers, we cannot and we do not save ourselves in any way, shape, or form. Salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. As my friend and teacher James Hamilton has written, he says, Salvation is not due to our right choices. Salvation is not due to the virtue of our character. Thank God. Salvation is not due to the superiority of our wisdom. Nor is it due to the strength of our will. Salvation belongs to God. God saves us from his own wrath and from sin, death, and the devil. And he does it all by himself. And so God is worthy of our unending praise. Verses 11 and 12, and then we're done. Notice this. Notice this very carefully. Because this is amazing too. The redeemed of God saved human beings from the nations. They've just cried out with this ballistic song of praise to God in verse 10. And now notice what happens. The angels respond to the song of the redeemed. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne when this great praise and worship time is going on. They're standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And what do they do? They fell on their faces. Imagine a 16-foot angel. 26-foot angel. I don't know how tall they are in heaven. But imagine the angel fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! (laughs) This is the response of the angels to our song of praise that we sing to God for His salvation. The angels fall on their faces and they cry, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. As Chris Wright has said, in this moment he imagines God turning to Abraham and saying, I told you so. (laughs) People from many nations, here they are. What a picture of bombastic, God-centered, Christ-glorifying praise that we have in these verses. Well, friends, it was necessary for us to gather here in this building this morning so that we could be giving, given this dose of reality. We come to church every week to reimmerse ourselves in reality. Before we go back out into what John Piper has called Disneyland. The vision of the nations at worship in Revelation 7 is in fact where everything is headed. And we can be 110% sure of this because God says that this is where he's bringing history. And nothing that God has said has ever failed. Nothing has ever failed. So when you turn on the news this week and you hear Wolf Blitzer tell you about divisions and wars and possible wars between nations, when you hear about people groups carrying out acts of horrific violence against other groups, I exhort you to pull out your Bible to turn to Revelation 7, to meditate on this passage, to pray for our world, to pray for more workers in the harvest, to pray for the salvation of those who have yet to know Jesus Christ. And whatever you do, keep your eyes fixed on the Lord of the nations, Jesus Christ, and the true and coming reality that he has created where believing people from every nation will be gathered eternally, no longer divided, but united in the King, worshiping Him and singing to Him and enjoying Him and enjoying one another. Hope in God this week. And remember that He remains eternally ruling on His throne no matter what. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are—we have our, our socks blown off and our minds blown 
by your revelation and the fact that you have a 100% record in bringing your revelation to pass, fulfilling everything that you have told us. Thank you, Lord, for this vision that we've looked at briefly this morning. And I pray that as we go out into the world later today even, that our hearts would be lifted and encouraged, our minds full of you and your goodness. Help us to live a God-centered week this week for your glory and help us to share the message of where history is headed with other people around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.